So as we've been going through the first uh, book of First Timothy, when I first started proposed this series to to George and Mark, um, I had a plan in mind of okay, this week we're going to be in this section, and this week we're going to be in this section. Um, but then I received an email from from George. Thanks for that, George. Where uh, he suggested that it be it be nice to kind of slow down a little bit and 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 talk about each of these qualifications in more depth. I you know, to be honest, I'm a I'm a fallen human being. I struggle with that a little bit because there was a there was that timeline, that schedule that I wanted to to maintain. But then, as I thought more about it, I thought, you know, that would be putting my desires above the Word of God. You know, um, there's nothing wrong. In fact, it's very beneficial to go even in, more in depth into the Word of God. And if I were to insist on, you know, maintaining a schedule of, you know, this week we're going to talk about these verses, and next week we have to move on, um, that would be uh, putting my desires above the Word of God. So today, what we did last time when we talked about deacons, sort of, we, we took a 30,000-foot overview of the role, responsibility, and general qualifications of a deacon. I thought we needed to do that. Um, because the word deacon just kind of plops on there without any sort of background. So we talked a little bit about that background, how they came to be, what their purpose was, the fact that the apostles, it was the vision of labor. The apostles would focus on ministry of the word and prayer, and then the deacons would focus on the, the uh, serving the practical needs, mercy ministry of the church. But uh, thanks for the uh, suggestion, George. I thought today uh, it would be very ben beneficial for us. In fact, over the next two sermons, I'll be here again next Sunday to dive into these specific qualifications, sort of like how we did with the elders, and go into and discuss each of these qualifications one by one. Okay, so there are several qualifications in verses 8 to 13. Today, we're going to just focus on verse 8 because there's four qualifications. All right, so we're going to talk about what it means to be reverent what it means to not be double-tongued, not given to much wine, and not greedy for money. Um, as we go through each qualification, you know, whenever you get lists like th these, um, I think the tendency for mo many of us, me included sometimes, is to kind of read them and gloss over them individually. And, and just have this idea of, well, these are all just fruit of the Spirit. You know, so they're just supposed to be godly men filled with the fruit of the Spirit, which is right. It's not wrong. But you gloss over the, the finer details of what each individual word means and practically how that would impact the church. So I think it's beneficial for us to slow down and, and take a look at each word. Uh, and, and really dive in and, and examine them. So let's do that today. So four, we're going to cover four qualifications today. Reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. The first word, reverent, uh, it's a word that means dignified, respected. Uh, the, the Latin word for this would be gravitas. Uh, someone who has gravitas. Uh, this past week, as uh, as you know, our House of Representatives was going through 
candidate by candidate after candidate. Uh, one of the discussions that I saw was, you know, people complained that none of the candidates really had basically gravitas in the same way that Ronald Reagan had gravitas. Whenever Ronald Reagan would enter a room, even if it was a big ballroom, everybody would fall silent. And, and Reagan himself was cognizant of the, of, the, of the dignity and respect that he had. And so he would kind of, you know, being an actor, he would kind of, you know, play up that persona, right? Um, but, but that's the word, reverent, dignified, respected, gravitas. Now, when the Bible in verse 8 says a, a deacon must be reverent, what does that mean? Does this mean that the deacon himself must be a revered person like Reagan? Or that the deacon must revere others, be reverent towards others. So, so what is reverent? Does it refer to himself or his actions towards others? The answer is actually both. The answer is both. This falls in line with our Sunday school, right? Whenever we have, it's not a controversy, but whenever we have uh, need understanding, we refer to the original text. In the original text, the grammar of this word indicates that it's the deacon who must be revered. The deacon must be a dignified person, a respected person, a person with gravitas, not just charisma, but gravitas because of his moral standing. Okay, He must be a respected person. That's what the original text, the grammar in the original text indicates. However, if we look at the English translation, for example, in the New King James Version, it seems that when it says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, it seems as though it's saying deacons must revere others, be reverent towards others. So how do you untangle that knot? I think the, the, the easy, the, 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 the most common sense answer is it's both. Because we've all heard of that phrase, you must give respect to gain respect, right? You must give other people respect in order to gain respect. Imagine someone who is not that. Imagine someone who is disrespectful, who does not revere others, who mocks others. Now imagine even that someone being someone of some power or some standing or some name. Sure, other people might give him face respect or, or respect in air quotes in front of him, right? Before him because of fear of his standing, his power, his office. But you know, behind his back, they won't respect him. So the person who doesn't respect or revere others, he and his, he is himself not really revered. So the answer is both. Uh, a deacon must be one who is not only himself dignified and respected, uh, has some sort of moral gravitas, uh, but he himself must be reverent towards others. Practically, why is this important to a deacon's job? Remember, for each of these, we're going to talk about practically, you know, what's the impact? Well, think about a deacon's task, a deacon's ministry, right? We, we said last in the last sermon that they are uh, primarily involved in mercy ministries. 
Mercy Ministries towards a very specific population, the poor, right? <laughs> because it's Mercy Ministries providing for the physical needs of those who are less fortunate and poor in the church. You know, certainly not Mercy Ministries for the well-off, okay? Mercy Ministries for the poor. Think about Mercy Ministries for the poor and think about our human nature. It's just a sad reality of fact that when we make fun of others, when we mock others, uh, we tend to go towards the less fortunate first. It's not right, okay? But it's basically what happens. Even if we are in professions or jobs or ministries that serve the less fortunate and the poor, you know it's human nature that, you know, when we get back in, in, you know, in our private conversations that oftentimes we make fun of the very people that we serve. Um, in my workplace, you guys know I, I work, I'm a paralegal in the public defender's office. Our clients are the indigent. Our clients are the poor. Uh, you know, our clients are the ones who come into our office and they haven't had a shower. Uh, they reek. Um, you can you can smell it from the hallway even before you enter the, the office. They have mental health issues. Maybe they're on drugs. They don't show up to court on time. A whole host of uh, issues that they're dealing with because they are poor people. And we are there to serve them professionally. You know, the attorneys are, we are the support staff, the paralegals. Um, very often in the hallways of my office between attorneys, uh, there will be what I call dark humor uh, directed at the very people that we serve. You know, I know the attorneys don't mean it. You know, I, I know that it's just office humor to get us through the day. But, you know, the Bible says what comes out of the mouth actually comes from the heart. And, and, and we are there and our motto is to serve these people, right? The indigent. And yet, in private, we mock them and we make fun of them. I have to check myself sometimes, right? I have to check myself sometimes uh, and to not do that. Now imagine if we take that and replicate that in our ministry, in a deacon's mercy ministry. It would absolutely ruin our testimony. Right? It would absolutely crush whatever legitimacy we would have you know, whenever we go out to hand out tracts. Um, practically, being reverent is very vital to the role of a deacon. Second, a deacon must not be double-tongued. Literally, this word in the original language means twice speak. To, to, to speak twice. Twice speak. Uh, in other words, uh, a double-tongued person is someone who is deceitful, but not so much uh, directly deceitful, but deceitful in the way where you say something, but you act in a different way. Or deceitful in this way. A double-tongued person is, uh, I, I saw this in one of the dictionaries, uh, is like a weather vane. It's like a spiritual weather vane where they will say something, but when the time is convenient or the situation is uh, convenient to say the opposite, they will say the opposite. 
Okay, so basically you're saying whatever the you know whatever the winds, uh, the 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 uh, whatever is convenient, whatever is expedient. Uh, the reason that we read Exodus 10 is because we saw an example of a double-tongued person in Pharaoh, right? When there was hail, Pharaoh said, let them go. And then as soon as Pharaoh saw that it was not convenient for him or expedient for him to let them go because Moses said, well, okay, we're going to take everybody. Pharaoh said, no, you're not going. And so there was another plague, the locust. And Pharaoh had enough. He said, forgive me, you know, and, and, and you know, and, you know, entreat your God to for me, you know, forgive my sin. You guys can go. And then as soon as the wind took the locust away, Pharaoh said, well, now it's not convenient anymore. You guys are not going, right? And so on and so forth. Um, actually, as we read Exodus 10, think about the history of Israel in Judges. That's what they do also, right? When an enemy would come, they would say, Lord, Lord, we're, we're being attacked. You know, come back to us. We, you know, forgive us. We're sorry. And then as soon as the Lord would raise a judge and drive out their enemies, they would go back to, you know, uh, uh, worshiping idols. Uh, Israel, Pharaoh was double-tongued. Israel was double-tongued. When your history starts to read like the history of Pharaoh, that's not good, <laughs> right? When, you're, when your actions as a nation start to replicate the actions of Pharaoh, that's not good. Um, a deacon cannot be double-tongued, reversing their positions, saying whatever is the most convenient or expedient for the day. Nobody should be double-tongued, especially Christians. Um, years ago, when the BLM and critical race theory was a thing, it still is a thing, when it first started being a thing, I had these, I had friends who were part of the PCA, maybe they're still part of the PCA, who, uh, they didn't come out to, maybe they supported it, but they didn't come out to reject it, and, and a lot of them would say, well, we don't buy into it but it's helpful in some instances. I think actually they wrote a position paper and that's, that's what they said. It's, you know, we don't endorse it, but it's helpful in some instances. And I kept telling them, no, it's straight out of Marxism. It's straight out of communism. Who, 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 who murdered and, 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 and slaughtered millions of people? You can't come out with a wishy-washy statement like that. You have to come out to, to, to condemn it. It's a clear wrong. And yet, I think many Christians took an expedient and convenient position on BLM because that was the, 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 the heir of, of our society at that time. Well, now, in recent days, with the attack on Israel, you saw the true colors of BLM when they, when they, when they tweeted out those paragliders who came down and slaughtered women and elderly folks and children. Just yesterday, those same people are, they were on Brooklyn Bridge shutting traffic down, chanting, you know, end to Israel. You know, what do you think that means? And yet the PCA, I don't think they will ever come out to condemn BLM and their stance on critical race theory when they should just apologize for it and say we were wrong 
This is clearly wrong. See, as Christians, we can be double-tongued as well, saying just whatever is spiritually convenient or expedient, and then changing as the times change. Practically, why is it so important that a deacon not be double-tongued? Or to put it positively, be a man of your word. Be a man of your word. Well, you need men of their word to build trust, especially trust with poor folks who might not know the church, right? We just talked about how uh, on uh, 69th Street, more and more people don't feel like they need the Bible, and they don't feel like they don't need God anymore. You're talking about people who are not churched, who have no relationship with the church, and who might have bad experiences with the church. You know, how do you get them to, to listen to God's Word? How do you get them to come to church to worship? You have to build up trust. But how do you build up trust if you are not a man of your Word? Imagine a deacon very warm-hearted deacon, very charismatic deacon, going up to, to a person who needs food. Yeah, you know, I've got a car. You know, I'll take you Saturday, and, we'll, and I'll buy you some groceries for your food. You know, Mercy Ministries. And then Saturday comes, the poor guy shows up, and the deacon's not there. Wow. Right? Well, that's double-tongued, mm -hmm. and that does not build up trust, and that does not do anything for Mercy Ministries. Well, probably, especially if you're thinking about mercy ministries. Like in, in the book of Acts, this was the daily distribution of bread. This wasn't, this was poor folks who needed that as daily sustenance. This wasn't like a church, you know, decided to have a buffet and invited everybody in the neighborhood to come. And, you know, the Jews got served first and the Gentiles didn't get served. No, this was people who had physical needs. They were hungry. You know, they were looking for food to take home to their, to their children so that they could feed them. And the church was trying to help fill that physical need. Okay? And some groups were being neglected and some groups were, were being served. Imagine a deacon going to one of the Gentile women and promising, yeah, you'll get your bread tomorrow. And she comes back tomorrow and there's nothing. A deacon cannot be double-tongued has to be a man of his word. Third, not given to much wine. Now, of course, we need to mention that the Bible does not forbid the drinking of wine. Uh, Jesus turned water into wine in John as his first miracle. And we, all, we know that uh, God would not, does not tempt us to sin. And so when Jesus turns water into wine, that means it's okay to drink wine in moderation. Okay, wine is okay in moderation. Um, Jesus would not do that as a way to tempt people to sin. Um, we know that Jesus used wine at the Last Supper. And even the way our verse is phrased, the Bible says, a deacon must not be given to much wine, much wine, as opposed to any wine. Okay, So even the way our verse is phrased indicates that wine in moderation is okay. But... What the Bible does forbid is addiction to wine. Addiction to wine. Now, there's, all, there's this biblical principle that says uh, 
biblical principle that Jesus expounded uh, that says, if God forbids or commands one thing, then all other similar actions, kinds of that thing are also forbidden or commanded, right? Jesus did that on the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about murder. Uh, and he said, well, if you hate your brother, that's in the same kind, it's the same category as murder. Um, so when the Bible forbids addiction to wine, it's actually forbidding addiction to everything, anything. Okay, not just wine, but anything. Money, addiction to gambling, uh, addiction to uh, sensual pleasures, uh, addiction to anything, uh, to television um, and whatnot. The Bible is very clear on this. Ephesians 5, 18 tells us, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, don't be filled with wine, but on the reverse, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with um, the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe the words might be too too stark, but don't be addicted to wine, but instead be addicted to the Holy Spirit. Okay, but be filled with the Spirit. What's the practical reason? Not only is addiction a sin, of course it's a sin, but especially when it comes to deacons and their ministry, you remember they're doing mercy ministry, which is providing for the physical needs of the less fortunate in the church, which involves the finances of the church, the money of the church, the usage of the money, how it's going, the, the usage of the resources in the church to, 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 to help the needs of, of the less fortunate in the church. And we know that when it comes to the stewardship, especially of money, that's a landmine. That's a landmine because money can so easily tempt people to do unethical things. And even more so if you've got an addiction. Okay. Um, just last night, my wife and I, we were uh, texting each other and then we were scrolling through the news when we saw the news that uh, Matthew Perry had died. The, the, the actor of, the, of Friends, he, he died. Uh, and so we were talking about that, and you know, one of the things that Matthew Perry uh, that came out in the last couple of years was he really struggled with addiction to drugs. Uh, and he said uh, in an interview recently that probably half of his life has been spent in either rehab or detox or counseling just trying to get off of drugs. Imagine half of your life trying to get over an addiction. And then something interesting he said in that interview. He said, it got to a point where he would take 55 painkiller pills a day. And the, and the interviewer was like, how did you get your hands on 55? He said, well, you know, I would fake migraines and go to different doctors and each of them would prescribe me something. And then I would go to friends' houses. Wow. Or I would go to open houses, strangers' houses, open houses, when they're selling their house and go in the bathroom and open up the medicine cabinet and see what they had, and if they had the painkillers I needed, I would steal them. That's what an addiction does. 
That's what an addiction does. I mean, you know, thank God he's he was much better at the end of his life. But but it, it completely warps your sense of morals and ethics to where you you have no qualm about going to somebody's house and stealing from their medicine cabinet and then confessing on it on national TV. Why is not having an addiction so practical for deacons? Because an addiction messes with your motivation. It messes with the ability for you to make sound decisions. And you absolutely need right motivations, ethical motivations, especially when you're dealing with church money. Well, somebody well, might ask, well, some, what if somebody's a recovering addict? You know, the drug pan- pandemic is, is overwhelming in our country. Well, what if somebody's caught up in this and they're recovering? You know, why uh, shouldn't we extend them grace and allow them to be deacons? Uh, I think the answer is let them wait. Let them wait. If they become like Matthew Perry and they and they wrestle with an addiction for thirty years, let them wait for thirty years. Don't give them that added burden of being a deacon and being around even more temptation, having money, having the purse strings like Judas Iscariot. Did. In a moment, we're going to read Psalm 99. Let them wait it out. Okay, let them wait until they're over the addiction and healed and fully well, and then let them come back and be a deacon. Might seem harsh, but in a moment, we're going to read Psalm 99. Psalm 99, which refocuses our attention, reminds us that we are all before God. Even the servants of God, Moses and Aaron and Samuel, they are servants before God. They are not free to do willy-nilly whatever they want. God will hold them accountable. That's what Psalm 99 talks about. The servants of the Lord are before him, and he will hold them accountable. And so we simply cannot afford to misuse God's resources, especially God's offering. Remember, the resources of the church, the offering, the money of the church is God's. It's God's, right? We cannot afford to misuse God's offering because somebody has an addiction. Which brings us to the last qualification, not greedy for money. Uh, the phrase literally is two words. It's the Greek word for shameful and the Greek word for profit or gain. So greedy for money, somebody who is greedy for money is somebody who is shamefully profiting, disgracefully gaining from church. Uh, Think of Eli's two wicked sons and what they did in 1 Samuel 2, right? They would sit at the uh, front of the temple or at the foot of the tabernacle uh, at the entrance. And when people would come in with offerings, they would say to the people, well, They were supposed to say to the people, okay, I'm going to help you offer it. And they were allowed to, after the fat was burned, after the good part of the meat was burned, they were allowed to, after the offering, to take some to to feed themselves. God had provided that for them. That was their sustenance. That was how God was providing for 
the priest of the tabernacle. But instead of doing that, what Eli's son said to the people was, uh, you give me the fat part first or else I'm not going to do the offering for you. They were not only deceiving the people, uh, not only were they in a racket, uh, but, but they had this attitude of, I need to be served first, even before God. My wants and my needs first, even before God. That's what it means to be shamefully profiting. We also read John 12, the story of Judas Iscariot, uh, where he uh, was saying to Mary, uh, you know, instead of anointing Jesus' feet, you could take that uh, oil and sell it for 300 denarii to help the poor. So it seemed like he had really good intentions. It's for ministry. You could, you could sell this thing and we could use the money for better ministry. Right? We could use God's money to buy a bigger house, mansion, for church conferences. Or you could use God's money to buy a, a, a helicopter so I can go from conference to conference faster. It's for God's ministry. But yet, we know what was truly in Judas's heart. He wanted to use that money for himself. Shameful profit, shameful gain is whenever someone, no matter what they say, they use God's money for their own benefit or their own comfort. Um, they're kind of double-tongued. They'll say one thing, it's all for God, it's all for ministry. But really what happens is they're benefiting. Uh, this is such a big problem with the prosperity gospel, with preachers in that movement, you know, who, who use church funds to buy planes and char you know, private charters and mansions. And they'll say, it's for ministry, it's for ministry. You know, don't you want it to help the ministry? You know, this, this huge mansion, we're going to use it for church conferences. And then they get questioned by it by court. And they say, well, yeah, it was used for church conferences like two weeks out of the year and the rest of the time I lived there. When you start doing things that resemble Judas Iscariot in John 12, that's a warning sign. That should be red flags everywhere. So a deacon cannot be greedy for money. Now next time, we're going to cover some of the other uh, qualifications that are on uh, this passage. But I want to leave us with one final question. This is the same question that we asked when we uh, talked about qualifications with, uh, with elders. Is How do you really know? How do you really know if somebody is reverent? If somebody is not double-tongued or if somebody is a man of his word? How do you really know if somebody's not addicted to something? You know, addictions can be very secret. Nobody on the Friends cast knew that Matthew Perry was addicted. I think some people knew, but, but most of us did not know that he was struggling. Even if you go back, even in the seasons where, you know, in the first couple seasons he, was, he looked healthy, and then there were a couple seasons in the middle where he looked like a skeleton. I remember those seasons. Okay, but, but we, we never thought that he was struggling with an addiction. That's something you can hide. How do you really know if somebody is a straight arrow, doesn't have an addiction? 
how do you know if somebody's not greedy with money? You know, and that's not something that you meet somebody over coffee and, and, and get a sense of right away. The Bible actually gets, gives us some answers, and we'll cover that next time. Basically, the Bible says, let them be tested first. Test them first. Give them a little bit to do and see how faithful they are with that. Let them be tested first. Okay? And then the Bible also says, examine his fruit with his family. Okay? If he's able to have a good marriage where his wife is a godly woman and his children are faithful and godly and reverent, okay, then that means something. Right? It would be very hard for a person who is addicted to gambling to also have a very calm and God-fearing, faithful family life. Okay, where there's, you know, uh, I, I, there's probably a lot of family internal strife going on. Okay, so so examine his fruit, especially with his family. So that's where the Bible goes next, uh, but we'll cover that next week as we as we continue on uh, these qualifications. May God give us the wisdom and the discernment. It kind of goes back to Psalm 99. You know, in, in George's email to me, uh, one of the things he mentioned was, you know, you know, we have to address this thing of uh, women deacons. And, and we will address it next week, okay? But one of the, one of the reasons why uh, churches appoint women deacons is they do it out of expediency. They do it out of convenience. And they forget Psalm 99 which tells us we, even servants of God, are always in front of God. They lose that perspective of, you know, these qualifications are there because we are in front of God, and God will hold his church, he will hold his servants accountable. They lose sight of that, and they, and they have in front of them, well, here's a need, here's expediency, here's convenience, so let's just do what's most convenient. Basically, that's what it boils down to, more than just a theological. What they'll do is they'll do the action first, because it's convenient, and then they will find the theological excuses to back that up. That is why when churches, whenever they put out this, you know, you know whenever they put, put out some kind of study committee that, that says it's okay to have women deacons, they'll have a lot of scripture that, that, that seems to back their position. But it's because they've committed to an action because of convenience first. And then they, they pick, you know, they, they, they cherry pick. God's word to, to serve their purposes. And that's totally wrong. Um, but may God give us wisdom. May God give us the right perspective, like Psalm 99, that we are doing this because we are in front of him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these sobering words. Um, not only which remind us of, of your holy standard for your church because of how holy you are, but also just how practical they are for the church to carry out its mission, especially for deacons to carry out their mission. Because as we've seen, Lord, we, a, a deacon, especially a, a, a person involved in mercy ministry, cannot be these things. They cannot be double-tongued. They cannot be... Uh, addicted to, to, to wine and other things. They cannot be greedy for money. 
They can't be these things and, 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 and be effective at, at their jobs. So Father, help us to, to maintain the right perspective. Help us to, um, for our church specifically, help us to find deacons, provide for us. We do desire to have deacons and we do desire to have mercy ministries. We do desire especially to do this the right way, the biblical way, according to your word. So Lord, provide for us. We do want to pray for the, the various things around the world and in, in our country even that, that we briefly mentioned as illustrations and examples. Lord, we, we do ultimately pray for peace. And not just the ceasefire type of peace. We pray for peace uh, and unification for those families who have loved ones who are held hostages. We, we pray for peace for the people of Israel, that you would protect them. Lord, we, we, we pray uh, ultimately just that, um, that, that you would change hearts, even the hearts of the terrorists who are, who are doing these heinous things to the people of Israel, that you would change their hearts, that they would see the cause that they are doing and they, that they would stop. Uh, big things to ask for, but Lord, you, you teach us to pray this way. So, so Father, we, we ask that you would bring true peace, true shalom, and not just a ceasefire, but true shalom to your people, Israel, and as well to their neighbors around them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.